Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bernie Kip. We're in, at Stowell Reeves' office in Portland. It's uh, November 22nd, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bernie. I really yeah. appreciate this. Yeah. So let's start off with uh, how did you get into the career you're in and, and started working with the wine industry? Well, I tell people this story and it's, uh, you know, I'm not particularly proud of it, but this is, I went to a, a state college in California. Uh, I was a liberal arts major and uh, decided to, you know, after I graduated, was looking for a job. And somebody suggests, you know, well, you can take what they call the Federal Service Entrance Exam. Uh, it was kind of the standard application test that you took for any federal job at that time. They kind of consolidated it. And part of it, you know, you took the test, but then you would um, say, okay, well, depending on how you do on this test, which agencies do you want mm -hmm. to see this? And what it was, was, now this was 1969, <coughs> yeah, 69. Um, and it was a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with like five columns on it, very small type. And it was every federal agency that was using this test. So I thought, well, uh, this is my, I swear this is true. Uh, the first column was alphabetical. I went down the list and I saw alcohol, tobacco, firearms. I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> so I checked that and a few others. And uh, a little while later they called and said, well, uh, we, you did really well on this test. Uh, you want us to send your information to this agency? And they did. And then they called me and said, Okay, um, all right, you, you want to go to work with us. At the time, I was living in Southern California. Uh, my wife and I got married in December, and um, she wanted to get out of L.A., so did I, so we moved, and one of the openings was in uh, San Jose. Mm -hmm. So uh, I came up there. <clears throat> Actually, I had to go to San Francisco for the interview, and then they said, well, we have openings in San Francisco, which includes Napa, Sonoma. We have down in San Jose. So I said, all right, San Jose. So that's, I went to work with um, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Um, at that time it was called, actually it was that time it was part of the Internal Revenue Service, okay? Uh, it, it didn't split off until ATF as a separate agency until 1972. Okay, so anyway, I, I went to the office in uh, San Jose and they pretty much, you know, did uh, oversight, government, IRS is a taxing agency, so you know it was involved with the excise taxes on alcohol. There were some fairly large distilleries in that area at the time, a lot of really small wineries, uh, a couple of major breweries in that area. And that's kind of what the job was. You went and um, you would do what they called inspections at these places, basically revenue audits, uh, now what they call product integrity, where you verify. So I, I got a pretty good feel for the California wine industry, not from the Napa side, but more the you know area down around uh, Monterey, uh, Morgan Hill, Gilroy, you know that area. 
so I got a pretty good um, exposure to that. And um, so, you know, I did that from 1969 till 1976, at which time I uh, transferred up to Portland. And that's how I came to be involved. And the area in Portland, um, this is where I kind of got my feet wet. And when I came to Oregon, um, you know, it's the same job, but the most popular winery in Oregon when I came here in 1976 was Honeywood Winery. And it was pretty much fruit and berry stuff. And um, the guys I worked with uh, were kind of, you know, the, the work that they did with these kind of wineries was, there's a lot of sugar and water added to stuff, so it wasn't so much, you know, label as far as, and I brought some experience that these local guys didn't have. I mean, they, they didn't know anything about, you know, vinifera grapes, and because they just, you know, they didn't make that kind of wine here. And they had, you know, Hood River Distillers, they had Blitz Weinhardt, they had Rainier Brewery, you know, some pretty big size ones, and some other, you know, over in um, Eastern Washington, some pretty good, you know, like fruit companies. But this is where I kind of, uh, kind of started out on the right foot here because I could sense that there was two main groups in the Oregon industry, wine industry. There was the Honeywood guys and others that I can't even remember their name now. And then there was the, the group that was pushing for the vinifera wine. And these guys, you know, all basically had side jobs or real jobs, and this wine stuff was just something they did on the side. Mm -hmm. And it took every hour and every penny that they had. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about this, but what I found mostly is that these guys were the, you know, they were very hard workers, they were very pioneers, but they hated government regulation <laughs> and they hated paperwork <laughs> because it just was a burden to them. And I remember the first couple times, I think it was Dick Ebrath, was having trouble doing uh, his annual report. Mm -hmm. And he said, I just can't make any sense out of this. And I'm tired of wasting time. I want to go ride on my tractor and work on my winery. I just hate this stuff. And I could sense from talking to him that he had had previous discussions with the ATF people long before me mm -hmm. that didn't understand what he was talking about. So he would say things and they would say, he got very frustrated because he, they weren't answering his questions and he said, I don't know if I'm asking the right questions, but I just don't want to spend any more time on this. But I keep getting these nasty letters that I'm not filing this, I didn't do that. I didn't. So he kind of struck a relationship with me because he sensed that I understood his questions and that was big to him. Mm -hmm. The other guy that I really initially found was Bill Fuller, and he was out in Tualatin Vineyards. He had come from the Napa Valley, so he was well steeped in this, and he knew that ATF at the time was, didn't really know what they were doing as far as regulating this. I mean, they just didn't. And so I got to be friendly with Bill, and um, he sensed that as long as there was an effort of somebody trying to you know, understand what was going on, they, he appreciated that. So, Another guy that was very much like that was Ron Volstek. And Ron had done so much work uh, with amateur winemakers. He was just, 
you know, at the Washington County Fair, everybody in there was working with Ron as to, you know, so he was very generous with his time. And he was one of the wineries that, that was transitioning away from the berry stuff into the vinifera stuff. And I mean, he, those two guys, Bill Fuller and Ron Volstick, don't get near the credit that they should because they were just really pulling the industry along. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I met people like uh, Dick Ponzi. I met people like, uh, you know, like I say, ERAP. Mm -hmm. David Lett was another one who hated this paperwork stuff. He just didn't. And he could get a little, you know, ornery about stuff. But he, if he sensed that you were trying to meet him at least halfway, he was really good to work with. And he, he was, you know, I mean, as far as the Pinot, he was the real pioneer on that. Richard Summers, I knew a little bit, but again, he was another one that if, if he sensed that you were, you know, not just going to be a bureaucrat and read regulations to him, he was, you know, a little different. But, but those guys, you know, were the ones, and they thought, okay, at least this guy understands what we're asking, and he, maybe they can help us with this. Because if you start giving them regulations about how much sugar and water you could add to this fruit, you know, it's like, they just got really tired of that. <laughs> but um, I, I thought those guys were, you know, it, like I said, if they sensed that you were trying to work with them, and uh, they were okay. And what I remember, I had some good training in California, and the guys that I worked with said, now look, you know, there's two ways to do this. You can just read the regulations and tell them that, or you can try to learn something about the industry. And so I was really encouraged to take classes and to find out about this, because it'll really help you <clears throat> if they have a sense that, that you've got some credibility, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to somebody that's just, you know, the old bureaucrat. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> that was the initial group that we ran into. Uh, the next second wave that we ran into was people like David Adelsheim. And that guy is, I mean, he was, not only was a really good winemaker, he had a real knack for dealing with the bureaucracy. And he knew how to um, kind of weave your, his way through things. He, was, he did all the, AB, the viticultural applications. He did all the, um, you know, basically wrote the Oregon wine regulations. He would talk to me for hours about the federal wine regulations and how they could merge. Um, that guy is just amazing. I mean, like I said, the wine he makes is really good too, but he was just invaluable as far as navigating this bureaucracy. So, and he was another one that if you sensed that, you know, you made an effort to kind of meet him halfway, then he was pretty good to work with. And I know I used to, uh, you know, he would send in petitions for, and the, he helped the Elmqua people, the sorts of Willamette Valley people, the Rogue people. He basically was kind of the ghostwriter for most of that stuff and said, this is what you got to show and this is what you have to do. And I remember clearly, uh, again, TTB was, at that time it was ATF, was dealing with this. And they had been mandated by the court because uh, a consumer group took them to took him to court to say, you know, your labeling laws are just fraud. I mean, when you, somebody says they have a um, Napa Cabernet or Napa Chardonnay, if you read the regulations, 
basically 24% of that wine is from the named variety and the named place. I mean, that's just fraud that you're allowing people to call it that. Mm -hmm. So TTB, uh, it was a consumer group, California, that took him to court and the judge said, no, th these rules are, these regulations are misleading. You need to rewrite them. And so they came up with a, a stricter thing mm -hmm. to where it is now. Still not as strict as Oregon because Dave Adelsheim wrote that. But um, he, they, they did that and they said, okay, and then they came up with this concept of ABA. And again, it was kind of blending what they do in Europe versus they do here. And it, it just really didn't fit right, but they tried to make it work. Mm -hmm. And um, David was one that said, okay, that's a good idea that we can show that this is a delimited grape growing region. It's got a unique characters to it. And he sent it in and, you know, I think the thing that David sent in went from Eugene up to Portland. Mm -hmm. And TTB kind of came back and said, well, you know, that's an awful large area. That's not really what we were thinking more of, a, you know, like they do in, you know, France or something. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to David and they sent it back to me and said, well, go talk to him and see if you can get him to cut this down a little bit. Because we, you know, if we start basically making half of a state, you know, then that, that ruins the whole concept. And I remember him telling me, he said, well, we can change it. But he said, if they want to change it, then they're not playing by their own rules. I went right down the list of stuff that they said, this is what you need to show. And he said, you know, I mean, they just want to be arbitrary and say that you, it's too big or whatever. And I went back to him and I said, well, if you're going to argue with this guy, you better come prepared because he, he did what you said. Mm -hmm. And then the next one they sent out was the Columbia Valley, which is, was huge. I mean, it, you know, it jumped borders and, yeah. but again, and that wasn't him, that was somebody else. But I said, hey, look, these guys did what you said to do. So anyway, there, there was that. Um, but there was still one guy um, uh, who was, still in the fruit and berry realm. And he was on the Oregon coast out of Nehalem Bay. And this guy's name was Pat McCoy and he was just a delightful character. He was straight out of Central, he was an ex-disc jockey. <laughs> and he bought this really nice location on the beach down there on the coast. And he, his goal was to have a tasting room, you know, where people would come by and, and you know, enjoy the coast and then stop in and have some of his wine. I mean, his stuff, you know, God love him. He, he was a fine fellow, but he was not a good winemaker. <laughs> and Adelsheim and Erath and other people said, look, here's the problem. Uh, when people buy Oregon wine, any Oregon wine, that's what they think of Oregon wine. So you had these, this core group that was trying to develop their image and get a quality product. And this whole thing with Pinot was coming out. And he said, the worst thing that can happen is that somebody goes to the coast and buys some of his stuff, and then they think that's Oregon wine, and it just undercuts our whole thing. And I, this is one of my favorite stories about Pat, because like I said, he was just a huge man, but and funny and clever. And he used to sword fight with us over these regulations. Like, how, you know, you guys have to take responsibility for giving a disc jockey a winery permit. You know, you can't just blame me. And, but anyway, he said, you know, I'm trying to do what I can here. And, and the whole thing is, it's a tourist uh, destination place. But he said, every time Sunset Magazine runs an article uh, about Oregon wine, I get 
10 people showing up here at our tasting room asking, where's Dick Erath? Where's, uh, you know, Dick Ponzi? Where's, you know, David Adelsheim? And I said, so what do you tell him? And I, he says, I tell him he's not here right now. What kind of wine do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what he, but it got to the point, I think, uh, and I heard this from several people, that they went to him and said, look, we can't have you selling this stuff as Oregon wine. And we'll make your wine for you. And, and you can put your label on it, but we can't have you putting this stuff out. Because he was making stuff like cranberry wine and strawberry. I mean, it was all this stuff that at one point, you know, was Oregon wine. So, but his trouble was that he'd get these fruits with really high acid, and they had all kinds of rules about how much sugar and water you can add. And of course, he'd go to the limit, and they'd say, well, that's still terrible. I mean, so he just keep adding sugar and water. <laughs> but yeah, Pat was a, he was a real character. And um, like I said, his deal was, you know, a tasting room on the coast. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but that's kind of what, what happened with these guys. Uh, Bill Blosser was another one that mm -hmm. started his place. Mm -hmm. And uh, these guys were all kind of in the same category. They were making kind of fine, uh, varietals, mm -hmm. but mainly the Pinots, and you know, it was people like David uh, Lett and Dave Adelsheim and Erath was another one, mm -hmm. that those guys really kind of bootstrapped the thing, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, and, and Bill uh, Fuller, you know, he was another one that uh, he, he made that one of the products that I thought was really liked for him was his Riesling, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And he would deal you know, because he came from Napa, he knew the whole deal. You know, he knew how it worked, and he knew what it would take. So, um, anyway, those those were the guys that I kind of started with. Now that was in the, you know, like I said, mid '70s all the way through '80s, and and then I remember um, um, Jim Bruno did his thing down in um, Willamette Valley. And he built a show place winery, still, still is. I mean, it's just, but he was another one that had a real skill at uh, dealing with legislatures and things like that. And those guys, I mean, they pushed this thing and said, we are not gonna get caught up in, uh, like they are in California. We are gonna make this a pure thing, very much like they do in France. And he didn't want certain varieties named. He didn't want Chablis and Burgundy named. Um, he was really adamant about that. And then the other thing was the percentages. Mm -hmm. And again, his skill was really good. And, and the o OLCC, the Liquor Control Commission, would get questions from people about, all right, now this rule says this, but this one says that. And, and they would just refer people to Adelsheim because he's the one that wrote them. And he said, <laughs> you know, that's the way it is, you know. So he, he was really good on that. And Again, back to Pat, um, when we were, t you know, one of the things he would get in trouble, I, I don't think there was a section in the regulations he didn't violate, you know. But he, he said, you know, the trouble with these guys running this Oregon wine industry, they put up on what he called schoolboy rules. And he said, it's going to make it very hard to sell this product nationwide. I mean, you might sell a lot in, in the Willamette Valley but, or Portland, but if you're trying to sell wine in New York or New Orleans or Texas or whatever, you're competing with people that don't have these rigid standards. Mm -hmm. And I, I think he, he was a pretty good marketer. He knew that. 
But um, outside says, well, that's exactly why we don't want to allow that because it's going to diminish the, you know, the reputation. Mm -hmm. So um, it was pretty much, you know, like I said, I, I don't know how many they're up to now, but that whole group in there was kind of in the same. They were all kind of, you know, like in Dundee, there's a few of them in Salem, and then over out in Washington County. But that whole corridor in there was kind of all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I mean, these guys were doing what they could. They were trying to cover the waterfront with, you know, developing their winery and they didn't have, I mean, they weren't selling that much wine. And they, they just felt this burden of all this paperwork and labels and all that. And they just got very frustrated with it. So that's, I mean, I've kind of worked with them and, and the guys that I worked with, there was two other guys in uh, Portland. One was Ron Fitzgerald and the other one was Bob Pimpelli. Um, we kind of helped each other, and uh, they, they kind of felt the same way. You know, you don't have to be an adversary. As much as you can, you work with people. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I, I would tell our supervisors, um, you know, that's a big part of what our group has. I mean, they have a, they have a big distillery in Hood River, which was, had been there for a long, long time, and Blitz was still going at the time. Mm -hmm. But so much of our permittee base was these wineries and small wineries, you know. Like I said, Honeywood had a lot of volume, and, but these guys, you know, and their whole thing was the label. It's that that's what's our gives us our reputation. So we would work with them, and um, and the new guys would keep coming in and so forth. And every once in a while, you would get somebody that was got a new marketing technique, and they were gonna, you know, let the investors decide how the wine should be made. And I, you know, I got Bob McRitchie was a fellow that worked at Sokol Blosser. He was just an excellent winemaker, but he could not stand that meddling and interfering, you know, be, because uh, I remember once when we were down and giving a class in Arizona to the industry down there. And we were going through the whole thing about the labels and all that. And one guy came up to me later and he says, listen, this is all interesting, but I, what I do is sell sweet wine to old people. That's what I do. That's what they want, okay? He said, I, you know, they come through our tours of Mexico. They come up through this border and they stop at the winery. He said, I make wine out in concrete tanks and I, you know, I bottle in a little bottle so they can put it and take it with them on the bus. He said, that's what they want and all this other stuff is meaningless to them and I said well okay but you know I mean you've got to cover the whole range and he goes yeah I understand that but that's not my thing I don't do this so there were still a few people like that but most of them were in the realm of, of trying to do something special so so tell me a little bit about you, you mentioned especially Dave Adelsheim and, and learning kind of learning the lessons of California's labeling mm -hmm. issues and, yes. and striving to be so tell me a little bit about what makes Oregon labeling special or, and made it special at that time what was what were those regulations well the first ones were the percentages <clears throat> like I said when I first started this and before they got sued the federal labeling regulations said if you're going to name a variety like Cabernet or Pinot or Riesling or whatever it had to have a minimum of 51% of that variety, which meant 49% of the volume could be something else. And then there was this Appalachian issue. And David and his group said, well, if it says Oregon wine, it's got to come from Oregon. It can't be made you know, anyplace else. And that's what's problematic, uh, trying to explain this to people, with the wine labeling versus the distillery labeling. You know. 
Um, if it says Oregon or any of these sub appellations, it's got to come. I think the latest was 85%. The federal, Oregon's like 100%. They, they didn't want any of that. And there was certain varieties that they, you know, Pinot Grigio was one. Pinot Grigio is not grown in Oregon. So if you have Pinot Gris, that's fine. But Burgundy, Chablis, um, trying to think of some others. Champagne. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, Champagne, Oregon, and sparkling wine. And I think they were just very adamant that this is going to be pure and we're going to place our bet on the image of Oregon wine. And um, he, like I said, was pretty good at, at writing regulations and getting them through the legislature. And he and I used to talk all the time about, okay, well, that's fine, we do this in Oregon. But he said, if you read your federal regulations, it says, in order to do this or make this statement, it not only has to be truthful, it has to be in compliance with the state law. And he used to always get frustrated with, he said, how can you guys approve this stuff because it clearly is in violation. So if somebody in Oregon could get a, a label approval for Pinot Grigio or Burgundy or Chablis, and he kept saying, you shouldn't be allowing that because it says right here that you have to be in compliance with the state. So we used to go back, you know, and like I said, he, he, uh, he would work on uh, name varieties. There was a big regulation on that. So, yeah, that was the thing. It was, uh, and that's where Pat, with this schoolboy rules, this group that was really adamant, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and of course, Vinifera, great. Mm -hmm. And they pretty much adopted what those Oregon guys wrote, so, yeah. Was there other significant pushback from the state outside of that kind of core group? Were there people in Oregon pushing back against those? Um, not at that time, because like I said, it was pretty much fruit and berry guys and then this hardcore group of vinifera. But as things went on, uh, and this was much, much later, as these ABAs, I mean, the first ones that came out were, like I said, Willamette, Rogue, Umqua, you know. And then, then we started coming up with these subcategories, you know, Shehala Mountain and uh, God, Ribbon Ridge, Ribbon Ridge and, Dundee. and Dundee Hills and all that. And I remember Barney Watson, who was uh, just a fine guy and a real, really smart guy that knew a lot about wine. Um, I asked Barney about it because, again, you, you come up with this criteria that they lay out, that it has to be you know, known by this name, it has to have a history, it has to have unique soils or whatever. And, and Barney kind of poo-pooed the whole thing. And he said, you know, that, that, that's a marketing thing. But he said, that's all Willamette Valley. He said, they, they're starting to say, well, these soils are different. And that. He said, okay, I mean, if you want to do that. But it, as far as real difference, he, he just didn't see it. But again, uh, I'm trying to think of the fellow's name that was uh, working with David on these because they, they sent in like six of these things at the same time and now God I'm mean, Yamhill Carlton and, and, and I think from what I understand they're sending even more yeah and Washington's doing the same thing and what it turns out is that okay these are marketing techniques I mean you can say well this this wine is from Yamhill Carlton this is from Ribbon Ridge these are really distinct okay maybe they are maybe they're not <laughs> but then you had the umbrella of the, but the point you were asking, um, the guys down in Southern Oregon started getting involved. And gosh, I wish I could remember the guy's name that was at the college down there. I mean, Earl, 
Earl something. Or other. He he came up with the Applegate um, the you know, subcategories down there, and he Is that said Porter Porter Lombard. No, not Porter Lombard. This was he came up there. He um, this guy was a, a professor. I want to say Jones. Yeah, Earl Jones. Yeah, Earl. Okay, okay, it was Earl. Yeah. Okay. And he said, well, we have to do something because we make wines totally different than they do in the Willamette Valley. Our, you know, our reds are much stronger and they come in earlier and all that. And, and a lot of the varieties that do well there don't do well here and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So he said, the problem is when I go to New York or you know, basically east of Portland or Oregon, when you say Oregon wine, they think Willamette Valley. So we've got to do something to establish our identity in Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. So they, they have a group down there that's really strong. Mm -hmm. um, I think Scott Henry was involved with that at the time. But um, anyway, so they were saying, look, you know, we, we don't want to just be lumped in with Willamette Valley because our wines are different. So we want some of our own identity, and, and they do. I mean, they did that. I don't, I don't know that they really pushed back, but I think Again, this was not my thing, but the industry said, look, we got to do something to promote ourselves. Um, so they taxed themselves and they did some other things with the grape tax that, that helped um, form this marketing board to get a push outside the state. And now, I mean, you, you can go to any major city in the country and nice restaurant in there will have Oregon wines and, and not just, you know, Irie or, or Sokolblosser. I mean, they'll have a lot of the smaller ones. Mm -hmm. I was in Louisville a couple years ago, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, there was like, I thought I was in some restaurant in Seattle or Portland. <laughs> I mean, all these wines they had, you know. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the only kind of pushback that I got on that mm -hmm. part of it. Now, the, <laughs> we'll talk about this later, but, there, you know, with the recent developments and the people coming into um, Oregon and trying to co-opt the mm -hmm. stuff, but anyway, um, I just remember, and I can't remember who said it, but uh, when I was talking with Adelsheim and his group about this, and they said, well, you know, they, whoever it was that said this, is that what we're trying to do is keep the fast buck artists out of the Oregon wine industry, mm -hmm. people that are just going to come in and capitalize and use it as a marketing term. Mm -hmm. So that's what... So when you when you when you first came into Oregon, mid 1970s, mm -hmm. you had a, a barely any industry at all. Obviously, a very very small Oregon wine industry, some fruit and berry, very very small group of core mm -hmm. vinifera growers. Tell me about watching it grow, uh, sort of somewhat because of these labeling regulations and for other reasons as well. Tell me about watching it grow, and when you started to feel like it actually was an industry with a, a, a bright future. Well, I think what really helped them is they would go to these tasting, blind tastings, and they would routinely wipe out California, and I think the one that they really bragged about was they wiped out a bunch of French wines. Mm -hmm. And they just made good wine. Mm -hmm. I mean, now they had to <clears throat> really work at it, I guess, uh, and again, I, I'm not a winemaker, I don't, but it was just a lot of hard work, and they, um, <clears throat> they would do that and go to these competitions and, and win awards. Mm -hmm. and. I, the guy I work for now has a it's kind of a side business, and he said that's what propels everything. If you get some really good uh, press mm -hmm. a, about a, a from a wine writer or a competition, then that's what people do. So they started um, 
they started doing really well in these competitions. And uh, I can remember once uh, going to a wine, uh, restaurant here in Portland, because <clears throat> we also did a lot of trade practice stuff about legal ways of selling stuff. And, and they were talking about this one particular restaurant in Portland. And they said, well, that guy is really different. I mean, he, he basically decides how much profit he made that week, and then he'll buy the wines that he thinks he can afford. And he'll buy like one bottle of this and two bottles of that, and that's what he did. So there, he wasn't buying cases of anything because he, you know, and he, that way he thought it gave him a chance to, uh, you know, uh, help out the, the industry itself and get into new wines. Um, I remember one time it was a, a guy's name, I think it was Bar Barney Smith, I think his name is. He was a winery down there in uh, Southern Oregon. And he, he was, again, this was a side gig for him, but he was a real purist. And we were trying to do something at the time, ATF was trying to do something to get a kind of a f fingerprint of what they would say, this is what an Oregon wine would look like, mm -hmm. like they do with liquor. Mm -hmm. And he said, who thought of that idea? And I said, well, they're just trying to help the industry, you know, because they, the, one of the main laws that they have to enforce is the Federal Alcohol Administration Act. <clears throat> and that law, you know, has all this revenue protection and all, I'm sorry, all this consumer protection mm -hmm. that, you know, for a wine that says this has to have this much, and uh, and they're they're looking for counterfeit because you know it can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, that you know that might work with whiskey or or gin or something, but it's not going to work with fruit because these grapes are all different. I mean, even though they're the same variety, a grape grown here is different than that grape grown here, and the style of the winemaker and all that. If it, you know, whole cluster or whatever. So. Anyway, I said, all right, Barney, I, I get that, but I mean, do you want to help out with this? And, and he said, well, what do I have to do? And I said, well, <clears throat> they'll, the government will buy it from you, but we need like a case of your wine that we can run these samples on. He said, oh, there's no way I could give you a case of wine. He said, that I, I would be denying eight or nine of my customers. <laughs> and he said, I, I just, I can't do that, you know. So I said, okay, well, then can you give us one? He goes, eh. And I think he finally, you know. But his idea was that you can't, I mean, it was that limited. People were buying bottles at a time. So it was difficult, yeah. So in your, in your kind of early days in Oregon, mm -hmm. uh, for, say, for first 10 years or so, take me through kind of like what a normal day or week would look like for you. What exact, were you, were you traveling to all these wineries? What were, you, what were you doing? Yeah, I mean, the area that I <clears throat> came to, um, from California, I was talking with one of the guys, he's a fellow investigator named Dave Dunbar, is one of the smartest guys I've ever met. But he, he was working here, and we were talking one day about, you know, areas that you had to cover. And I said, you know, we had to cover from San Jose all the way down to San Luis Obispo, and uh, he goes, yeah, well, okay, he said, what we do here is we cover Oregon, Washington, Montana, Idaho, um, he said, so Alaska, Hawaii. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, your little group here, you know, doesn't really match up. But he would tell me that uh, what would happen, and again, this is the way it worked, but a lot of the work um, was in Oregon and in like the I-5 corridor. Mm -hmm. But there, you had stuff, 
in eastern Washington, some larger fruit things, but Walla Walla was really not much at the time. Um, Red Mountain and all that, Yakima Valley. I mean, they had stuff over there, but it really wasn't. And then St. Michelle built their place and then the place over in eastern Washington. But to your question, I mean, people, we would, you know, our supervisor, my supervisor was in Seattle and he'd say, all right, look, we need to go do these, uh, we need to do some inspections here, but we try to match it with somebody at that time, you'd, you'd field visit when you went into business. Mm -hmm. So he said, I, you know, if I got some guys starting over in Eastern Washington, I'm gonna match that with um, three or four things that we can, you know. Mm -hmm. But, um, so there was some travel, but like I said, the main emphasis for the new wineries was kind of in the Willamette Valley area and then Salem picked up. Uh, and then you had to match that all around, you know, you're doing your revenue audits of places like Hood River and, and others. But somebody would come in um, and uh, they'd say, well, you know, we bought this property and we're trying to get some bank financing. Because when you go through this with both the state and the feds, they they want to know how much money you've invested and where did it come from? Because it was, you know, the straight pro or post-prohibition thinking. You know, they were keeping the organized crime out and all that stuff. <laughs> so there was a lot of that. Uh, and that's how I knew that these guys were really strapped financially. I mean, they were doing everything they could just to keep it going. Mm -hmm. So, but is it, you know, kind of picked up. And what I found from the Oregon wine industry was a real camaraderie. They, they were willing to help each other kind of for this greater goal kind of thing. And they really do that. I mean, their, their industry was like that. But we would get people, I remember um, Bill Blosser, who was, I think he's an engineer. I mean, he really is buttoned up on stuff. And he was coming in and going through the whole thing and showing it and, you know, he said, well, this is what we're gonna do. And, you know, it may not look like much at the start, but, you know, we have big plans and, I mean, look what's happened with him. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of people just, you know, doing what they could to get started. Um, I remember my boss, uh, an older fellow, just a really nice guy, but he was kind of on the old school and he'd see all this stuff going on and I'd say, well, his name was Walt Kite. And I'd say, Walt, you know, we had these three guys come in here and they're all talking about starting a winery. And he goes, all right, now look, so let's be sure that they're past the daydreaming stage here, okay? I mean, have they got any money? Have they got a place, you know? Because he, he said, I, we can't just be spending time with these people if they're not gonna, you know? So I said, oh, okay, but, so that's what, that's what a lot of that, you know? So tell me about how your job evolved as the industry was growing. Clearly, into the, by the end of the 80s and into the 1990s, you're, you're all of a sudden you have an industry with right. hundreds or hundreds of wineries. So tell me about how your job evolved uh, and sort of what it, what it became over the years. Okay, what happened with this, and again, this gets back to this uh, business of trying to learn something about the industry. Um, what would happen is that I would become kind of an unofficial liaison mm -hmm. to people in bureau headquarters and regulations branch and um, some of the other uh, some of the other branches back there that would write rules, um, labeling, mm -hmm. and because I knew the industry a little bit, um, they would come to me and say, "Well, look, um, what about this? They want to do this. Is this a good idea? Can they do it? You know?" and I'd say, well, this is what they want to do. Now we have to see if it can fit, you know? So that's kind of how that went. I, I mean, I ended up 
talking to some people about regulations. And, and for example, one thing I can really remember was a guy named Harvey Schaefer, who I, I don't know, have you ever heard that name, but he's just a fine fella. He had a winery over in Forest Grove, Schaefer Vineyards. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he was another one that, you know, I would go to these guys and talk to them about technical stuff. And they'd say, well, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. And then they'd come to me, and he was the one that said, you know, I, I have to send in a tax return to you guys every two weeks. He said, look, IRS lets me file once a year. And I pay them a lot more money than I pay you guys. So <laughs> what's the problem with this? And so I said, all right, Harvey, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, we'll write a petition, and it'll be mixed in with a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, the, for a winery tax below this level, you should be able to file once a year. And, and they approved that, you know. So I would tell that industry people that. I said, you know, you guys come up with these ideas. We'll try to get them in the pipeline. Um, but there was that. Um, the, the ABA thing, they kind of came to, you know, they needed somebody in the field that could go out and talk to these guys. Um, I'm trying to think. A lot of the stuff with this fruit and berry stuff, um, like I said, there were certain fruits you just couldn't make wine from unless you could really add a lot of sugar and water. Mm -hmm. So um, we got some of that changed too. But, and again, there was a massive re re rewrite of the regulations. Part of it was because, in, like in the late, early 80s, late 70s, um, that would, was part of it was implementing the court decision, but others just to, you know, I know Nancy Ponzi used to argue with me all the time about, look, we're small people. We, we, you know, we don't have unlimited time or money. I mean, these regulations seem really burdensome. Mm -hmm. uh, can't you, we do something about consolidating them or reducing them? And, and the push and pull of that was, okay, but on the other hand, you guys, people over here that want those regulations because they uphold the integrity of the label. Mm -hmm. So if you, people just, like I said, the fast buck artists, you know, they just want to put something on there and run, then that undercuts your thing. And, and again, it, it, was, it was difficult because, the, you know, what I used to tell guys, and I used to, when I was the district director, I would train them, and I'd say, look, this is, this is what you have to do, and this is what you have to have the wine guy. You go into the tasting room, and you grab a bottle of whatever it is, and it's sitting there labeled and ready to go. I said, now you show me all the way back through bottling, storage, fermentation, and crush that you can support what it says on this label, mm -hmm. okay? And if you can't do that, then I can't do it, and you're, that label's not entitled to be on this wine. And I was like, oh my, you know, well, because all these Oregon wines, these, you know, had all these embellishments. They had vintage date, they had Appalachians, they had, uh, some of them would have, um, well, the, but the variety, mm -hmm. they would talk about how it was made and fermented in small batches or whatever. Um, whole cluster fermentation. I said, you had that records to pr prove all that, mm -hmm. you know? And of course, a lot of them, well, we know how we did it. And I said, yeah, but that doesn't count. So you would run into that. And, um, but, but it was burdensome, it really, and like I said, most of these guys had a side job or a real job that they were trying to make this work. So that's where that was. You had kind of an interesting role as you were, you were, you, you were kind of, like you say, a liaison, like you well, were. Well, that's the way, it, I mean, and then towards the end of my career, before I got to be district director, I actually worked in regulations branch. And at that time, they were letting me 
uh, work from, I didn't have to move to DC, but I went back there a lot. But yeah, and again, I think this speaks well to the agency. And again, you gotta remember what ATF was going through at that time. I mean, they were guns and bombs, they, you know, the agents that doing their thing. And we were kind of this side issue over here. Used to really annoy me, but that, that's the way it was. And, and the answer was, Congress gives the money to the agencies and they tell them what they want them to do. Okay, so the main thing was they were into law enforcement with, um, you know, gun sales and storage of explosives and bombings and all that. So this other stuff was kind of a, you know, okay, yeah, there's a group of people that find that interesting, but, you know. So they would work on it. Um, and again, the agency, the agency would say, look, we need to be, you know, have some credibility here when we go, go talk to these guys and say why you can't do this and why you can't do that. Because you'd end up arguing with people like Adel Simon and other good attorneys that would say, here's your regulation, so why aren't you enforcing it? So, yeah, I, I did that and that was fortunate for me and my bosses. I, I, they kind of let me do that as opposed to, because a lot of other guys were out going to gun dealers and they were going to explosive magazines and, you know. But, you know, so there was that. And that's how I got to know a lot of these guys. Um, and I, over the years, you know, I would do certain, we used to do a, a lot of what they called uh, wine seminars, kind of educational efforts where we would, uh, and I would argue, said, listen, you can sit there and kind of like a hawk on a fence and waiting for somebody to do something wrong and then jump on them. Or you could have these outreach things where we'd go through the regulations with them and give them examples of what records should look like. And those are very popular. We did them in California. We did them all through the Northwest. And people really like that kind of stuff because a lot of the peoples as they, people as they got larger, they would hire staff that was responsible for all this stuff. And the turnover was really high in that. I mean, somebody would learn it and then they'd go on to something else, you know. So that's, that's, that was a good thing. And I think they um, tried to start back with that. Um, again, th things change, you know, there was a big emphasis on online learning and all that stuff. So um, I just always felt that those seminars were beneficial. And, and, and we had a counterpart that the microbrewery, everything I told you about the wine was on that side too, except those guys were far more edgy. I mean, they were willing to do stuff that they probably shouldn't have. But um, it was the same kind of thing. It started small, you know, I mean, Portland, Seattle, with all those. So, yeah, there was that too. Tell me how you, you, you have a pretty unique perspective having seen distilleries, w mm -hmm. wineries, breweries. Tell me how you view the wine industry com compared to those. Uh, what, what is similar about wine versus those two? What, what is different? Well, um, what is unique about all of them is that initially, uh, when I started, and most of the people at ATF I knew, when you talked about a brewery, you were talking about Budweiser or, or Miller. You talked about a winery, you were talking about Gallo. Mm -hmm. You talk about a distillery, you were talking about all those guys in Kentucky, you know, and we had Hood River. They were all big. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we had some folks um, with the distillery part of it. Um, they would start making unique small batch products, brandies in this particular. Um, Steve McCarthy that had um, Clear Creek Distillers, he, he was the one that would make these small batches. and. 
He had a friend of his in California that was doing the same thing. And he said to me, um, or that guy told him, ATF doesn't understand their own rules. They're gonna tell you you can't do this. They're gonna think if you're gonna be a distillery that you, they will expect Hood River. Mm -hmm. And somebody making stuff in a small building and small batches, they, they don't know how to handle that. And he said, you just have to tell them it's like baking a batch of cookies. Instead of building, making 50 of them, you're making five. So you have to cut everything back. And so there was that. And that's the same thing with the brewery thing. I mean, you know, Widmer, as far as I know, started in their garage, you know. Uh, so there's a lot of similarities into these unique batch things. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, they got the same amount of uh, paperwork. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that um, Bill Fuller and I talked about, and he was the one way, way back when, and I said, Bill, you know, the problem with this, and, uh, and I can see the industry's chafing at this, is that whether you like it or not, when you go into the wine business, the government's your partner. And they want a lot of what to say. And he said, most of the people, you know, resist that. They, they don't need a partner. They don't want, you know, somebody telling them how to make their wine or you know, what they can, you know. But he said, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, and so there was this resistance, like I said, because to them, they didn't think that was helping their wine effort at all, but it was sure was taking a lot of their resources. And it's the same thing with the breweries and the distilleries. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of that. And I think there's also a lot of uh, collaboration between these people, you know. Uh, Portland's, I don't know how many little distilleries they have now, but over in Southeast, I mean, they've got six or seven maybe, you know. So, but the biggest problem that I see for the industry now is um, because there's so much outside influence, so people coming in, buying up wineries, buying up property, buy, you know, and they're coming over the top. A lot of them are coming from Europe where they're not used to this kind of regulation. Um, what I find more and more with small wineries, especially now, is the only way they can survive, and I mean the only way, is through wine clubs um, and direct-to-consumer. It's so hard to get into these retail chains. You know, it just, you go in there and, you know, and the retail people, again, I've talked to a lot of them, and they say, look, you know, I have seven or eight Pinot Noirs out there. I don't need that. I, mean, I could do two, but I, I don't know which two. See, that's the problem. And it's just so hard with shelf space. So the guy told me, look, uh, he said, this retail chain said, look, what we are are basically landlords. You know, we lease out our space to vendors. And our whole idea is getting stuff to ring at the cash register. We don't want to be involved in ordering it, stocking it, pricing it. The only th involvement we want is when somebody gives us something and we run it through the cash register. That's what we do. That's the only way this business model works. So they, they want all the effort back onto the um, vendor. Okay. So that's very difficult. Uh, and again, uh, one of the buyers at one of these large chains told me once, he said, listen, I, if I wanted to, I'd have a parade of people all day long coming through here telling me why I should do this. Why should, I don't have time for that. So 
you know, I pretty much, you know, we do a lot of scan data information and what sells and what doesn't and what's our profit margin. But he said, so if some little guy coming in here said, you know, I make really good wine, and I'm like, okay, but I don't have any place to put it. So, so it's just really hard. And I think Doyle Hinman was the one that told me, uh, he was the guy down in, um, he, yeah, um, what was the name of his winery? It was Hinman Vineyard, yeah, okay. Uh, he told me, he said, listen, he was just a really friendly guy, and he said, um, I, when I started this, you know, I, I knew it was going to be a lot of work. And he said, it's basically, it's farming, growing the grapes. But he says, there's dealing with you guys, there's dealing with the state, there's dealing with the county, there's dealing with OSHA. And then we've got weather that we have to deal with and try to get glass and try to, you know, get tanks. And because a lot of these guys like Adelsheim would get a load of uh, oak barrels from France and all. But he said, all of that was as difficult as it was dealing with the weather and all that. He said, it paled in comparison to trying to get a bottle on the shelf. He said, that was the hardest of all because there was just this resistance. And he said, I just try to tell these guys this, that you can make the best product you want, but it's trying to get it in for sale. So a lot of them have defaulted to this, all right, we'll have a tasting room and we'll have um, direct to consumer which is an animal onto itself because the states, you know, want to regulate. They don't want stuff coming over the top. Uh, the wholesaler groups don't want that. They want, you know, to control. Mm -hmm. So what I find most of the Oregon wineries um, and Washington, they see small guys starting out, unless they have a whole lot of money back somebody, they, they have to go this direct-to-consumer and tasting room thing and then hope that that catches on and build some momentum, but it's it's hard. I mean, and you know, there's so much competition uh, and the money, you know. The other thing, I used to talk to a lot of the industry guys and they'd say, well, okay, but we have a price point that we have to sell and we're getting squeezed by these big retailers that, you know, they will keep cutting the price and cutting the price and pretty soon we're just, we're not making any money at all. We're making some wine, but, you know, so it, it's hard, it really is. So I'm assuming in, in this in this career you had that you had at some point some people tried to try to put to put something over on you or pull, pull oh, yeah. fast on you without naming any names. Uh, I'm curious if you could remember any, any interesting incidents of someone yeah. trying to pull something on you. I can uh, tell you the one that I before I came up here even um, there was a winery in California that um, you know what, what happened in California is that they you know have varieties that were popular some of these old vines, you know, would it, I think the last I heard it was like five years to have an actual producing vineyard so from the time you plant it to the time you can use the fruit. Um, well, the industry changed and um, they would put in, you know, people started liking this variety as opposed to that. Well, that variety isn't available. I mean, you know, or, or to very limited. Mm -hmm. And I remember this particular winery um, was buying stuff, but they didn't have enough of this particular variety. And they would buy stuff over from the Central Valley, and, and uh, we kind of got the idea that this guy was providing the paperwork that I told you about, and he was basically falsifying it, saying it was this variety than that variety. And he was just really sloppy and clumsy at it. I mean, it was easy to see it. So this other fellow and I were doing this, and they said, well, we have to go over 
Central Valley and talk to this grower. And I went to see the guy and I said, okay, and first of all, he was kind of like, who are you and what do you want? Because he wasn't a, he was a grower. He wasn't, mm -hmm. and he had a huge German shepherd, I remember, that was his buddy there. So I said, well, look, we, we want to talk to you about uh, some fruit that you sold to this guy. And he goes, okay. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, we, I think he wanted some of this and some of that, and we sold him that. And, I said, okay, so that's what you sold him. I said, he said, yeah. And I said, okay, so that, that's what he asked for and that's what you sold him. He goes, yes. So I said, okay. Um, he said, well, what's the problem? And I said, well, he says it was that, not this. And the guy looked at me and looked at his dog and he said, well, then he owes me more money. <laughs> <laughs> so, I said, well, no, that's not what I want. And he, I, I, it was hard, but he ended up giving me a statement that no, he said that, yeah, you've got the invoices there and that's what, uh, that's what we'll go with. And he goes, but boy, I, you know, and, he, and then he kept thinking, did I just get swindled here or something? But he was, I think he was willing to say whatever he had to as long as he could get some more money out of it. But that was, that was one that was uh, a problem. So, yeah, I mean, there was that kind of stuff. And, and I think, ATF had a major case in the, I forget when it was now, but that grape fraud, mm -hmm. they, they had a major thing. I didn't work on that. I knew the people that did, and they, that was a big deal. And it, again, it's the varieties that, um, we used to kind of joke about this. One time we were at a training class down in Atlanta, Georgia, and they had some kind of, uh, I don't know, wood sales thing going on in the same hotel we were at. and. They were talking about it, and this whole business was people would buy this kind of wood and sell it. And he goes, so they were talking to these retailers, and the guy said, "Well, now here's your problem: you've got oak, I mean, you've got cherry, and you've got maple, um, but what what the people want is oak. So what do you do?" And he says, "Well, you get some oak stain and plenty of <laughs> make it oak. Yeah, that's kind of what." And sometimes they tried that in the wine business. And that's where like, people like David Adelsheim and, and his group were really purist about that. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen, you know. Sure. So, so obviously as, as Oregon wine has grown in, in popularity and in profit, uh, it, it, has, it has had, uh, had some issues with uh, outside influences yes. in the later years yes. and obviously some notable incidents. So tell me about your view of and, and, and involvement in some of the more recent uh, Oregon wine cases here. Yeah, I, um, well, I mean, I don't do anything with it now, but I mean, Jim Bernot came to me when this latest dust-up that they're having with the folks in California. <clears throat> and he, his point to me was, isn't what they're doing illegal? I mean, what do your regulations say about that? And I, I would say, well, Jim, I mean, yeah, I mean, you pointed out some things. Uh, some of these labels are clearly misleading. They shouldn't have been approved. Uh, others uh, could be, and it's the idea of where the fruit came from. Uh, some of it is, you know, you guys may not like it, but it doesn't mean it's illegal. I mean, so it was all over the lot. And this is where you were asking about the unanimity in the industry. Um, the Jim Bernot group, who was very involved with the state legislature, was trying pushing for some stricter regulations. The folks in Southern Oregon are saying, now wait a minute, now you're, you're gonna kill the whole Oregon brand with this stuff. I mean, that's great for you, up in, but he said, we're down here, and we sell a lot of fruit and wine to other people, and you know, 
they should be able to say that if it's made, you know. So there, there is that, because it's all, how is it gonna affect them financially? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, as you see people, like say, trying to basically come in and pirate the Oregon name, or um, there's a lot of pushback against that to make sure that, because, you know, if you get something out there that says Oregon, and it really isn't, or, or it really isn't what the state wants, you're back to Pat McCoy with his deal. So there is that, and there's, and there's so much money at stake here. I mean, you're dealing with somebody that has got a really strong marketing arm that can you know, do a very good job of selling wine. And again, I, I was a very much on the periphery of this. I, I, would, you know, I did some stuff for Jim, and I talked to some people, and a couple of newspaper articles, and I think the San Francisco Chronicle, but I'd say, look, I mean, you know, the guy's trying to do what he can do. You can't hate him for that. I mean, he's trying to sell wine, but Jim Bruneau felt very strongly that this was, you know, basically a, a gotta say, pirating the name. Mm -hmm. And he's very effective at getting the state to pass these rules. Mm -hmm. So that's where the things like, I haven't talked to David about this for years, but he would say, okay, ATF, TTB, you can't be approving these labels for people if they're doing this because the state says, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I did, that was one thing that I did talk to, um, I still have a lot of contacts back there and the labeling folks and I said, you know, you guys, this, there's a hurricane coming here. I mean, this is gonna land right in your lap because you've approved some labels that probably you shouldn't have and you're gonna have to rescind some others. And he said, this, there's gonna be a lot of, I mean, some of the, uh, you know, Congress people, senators, are very interested in this. So again, I mean, they're like, oh geez, you know, we have to, one of the things I used to always tell people that they just didn't understand this. When you send in your label for approval, the only thing TTB can do is look at the four corners of the label and say, all right, does the mandatory information, is it in the right place? Is it the right size? Is it, you know, is there anything contradictory about it? So it can only be approved to form because that's what they're, they have no way of knowing if that label it gets put on the right bottle mm -hmm. that's where the field has to come in and i would say to guys to try to explain that and i'd say all right are you sending a perfectly fine label for pinot noir but it doesn't work you put it on a bottle of chardonnay and he said well we wouldn't do that and i said okay but you're arguing why did this label get approved and i should be able to use it you can use it if it fits and that's where a lot of this subtext of uh, the appellation and when can you use these ABAs and so forth. And they, there was some labels rescinded. So, yeah. What do you, what, what, is, what has changed the most about Oregon wine since you became a part of it? Uh, addition, besides just pure size, obviously it's grown. What else about Oregon wine industry has changed the most in, in your? I, again, I think it, it's transitioned from these small guys that did this on the side business. I mean, there's just a lot of California money that has come in, a lot of European money. Because <clears throat> these guys see something good and they want to be part of it. But the, the you know, the business model that <clears throat> Erath and Ponzi and, you know, Bill Fuller and those guys, when they, when they started, um, Dave Lett, you, you don't see that much anymore. First of all, because the land is too expensive, you know. I mean, a lot of the land got bought up by the California wineries, and I remember a couple of people telling me, you know, in the old days, uh, the 
vineyard production changes from year to year depending on the climate. We get bumper crop here and we get this and there. And, you know, you could always kind of supplement your vineyards if you had to by buying fruit from somebody else. He said, not anymore. I mean, all that fruit is tied up in long-term contracts. And so it's just very hard um, to get additional fruit price of the land and then and and the other thing is the the industry is really saturated now i mean somebody oh i'm gonna go in business and make pinot noir geez i wonder why nobody else thought of that you know <laughs> <laughs> so there there is that i mean they've kind of reached the point and and that's why <clears throat> i think uh the people that want to keep that standard high you know that that's what they've got kind of the, you know the purest part of it so what do you see as you look ahead for the industry? What, what does the next decade look like? Well, again, I, I'm not an economist. I just know when I talk to my boss here, who's, who's very much involved with, uh, uh, you know, helping the winery get started from all the way from financing to land acquisition to, you know, to, um, he, he thinks a lot of them are kind of in trouble. I mean, you know, they have a lot of wine to sell uh, and nobody really to sell it to. And it, it's just a function of the economics, you know. <clears throat> so you still you still get people that you know want to come in, and but like I said, the little guy that, that's got three acres or something and wants to, I mean, he could do that and get the paperwork and all that. But now what, you know? And a lot of it's just hobby stuff, you know. People that you know nobody's making any money at it. Um, others that are just really good, hard-working people have just found out there's too many people doing the same thing. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's going to be kind of a thinning. That happened in the in the brewing industry. A lot of the microbreweries just went out of business. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so many of them um, are tied to pubs, and what they're finding is the the pubs people don't want just the greasy hamburger anymore. They want this kind of high-end mm -hmm. thing, and a lot of them have just closed their pubs. You know, so um, I don't know how how it's going to. I mean, I I think it's it's very hard. To, I think to start something new and, and be successful at it. I think there's a lot of people making five or ten thousand cases a year, and it's like, okay, now what? You know, the guys that do well are the ones that have a good product and they sell everything through their wine club or their direct to consumer. Those guys at least are not underwater at this point, but. Again, like the buyer told me, I don't. I have ten Pinots. I don't need eleven. I don't need ten. You know. So tell me which ones I can get rid of. Mm -hmm. So that's. I think that's just mm -hmm. the reality. Are there other? Uh, do you anticipate more issues like it's like Jim Bruno's issue? Do you anticipate more of that happening in the future? Uh, it could. Um, again, it would have to be something that you know, that really kind of gets to the core of the brand. Mm -hmm. But um, there's always stuff coming up. I mean, you know, uh, like they had in Europe, you know, with the the, uh, the France, the scandal they had a few years ago. Uh, when, you, when you have something and there's not enough of it and people want it, that kind of creates the situation, you know. Um, but, um, that thing in France, I mean, that, and that was one of the main premier regions, and people thought that would never happen. Well, it did, you know. So, I mean, I, there's, there is stuff, um, 
that kind of gets outside of TTB, you kind of get into FDA stuff, you get into this resveratrol where people are, you know, I mean, California has the big thing about uh, the labeling mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it gets, you know, into potential health issues and things like that. Um, so there's all these outside factors that come into play that can really land on somebody that, you know. So th there could be that kind of stuff, you know. I mean, people are looking for ways to maybe get into the get into the pockets of the industry. But yeah, you know, I mean, there, there's uh, FDA. They regulate stuff, um, organic claims, allergens. I mean, TTB has been fooling around with that now for when I was there, you know, this idea of allergen labeling. Mm -hmm. And the industry really resists that because they, they're gonna end up looking like a can of, you know, fruit cocktail or something with all the stuff they have to put on there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but there's another side that says, hey, this is a real thing, these labeling allergens, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So this stuff is, is difficult, yeah. So as you, as you look back over with your involvement with Oregon Wine, what, do you, what are you proudest of? What is, what is I, I think what I was proudest of was that I was able to kind of get in and, and be accepted as more than just a bureaucrat, somebody that was willing to work with them. And um, like I said, I demanded that of the investigators that I had at the end. I said, you guys, you're going to have to know something about this industry. It's going to require you to do some of your own research and study. Mm -hmm. But I don't want you going in there and making a fool out of yourself by saying something stupid. And because they'll sense that and they'll say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And you're in there trying to tell him to do something that he didn't want to do. And he, first of all, discounts you. So, I mean, that, that I think was the collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. And believe me, there's a lot of people in government regulations that one of my favorite bosses told me that he didn't like the idea of these seminars. He said, we're not here to entertain people. We're here to regulate them. I don't care if they like us or not. They probably shouldn't like us. And I say, you know, you just can't do that. I mean, these people, this is not these, he was from the Midwest, and he said, this is not Jim Beam and Jack Daniels, and you know, you know these, it's different than that. And he, and, and he thought, you know, all this labeling and checking, and he said, you know, that's, either people like it or they don't. And, but, but he kind of came around to the end and said, okay, this is our group here, so this is what we have to deal with. And I, he was, helpful on that. He would allow us to do the seminars, but I think that was the main thing. It's just that we kind of came across as maybe somebody was willing to work with you as opposed to just regulate you, you know. So I think that pretty much. And so you're still not officially involved in the industry, but still kind of uh, Yeah, I worked with Stoll Ruse okay. and um, uh, they hired me right after I left TTB. Mm -hmm because they had been dealing with me, you know, uh, I mean, with representing their clients and stuff would come up and they said, you know, you seem to still have a pretty good uh, relationship with the industry and you also um, seem to have some friends still in the government. And, and I said, yeah, because I, I don't ask them for favors, I don't try to take advantage, but I understand that, you know, they need people to work with. So he said, well, look, if you come to work with us, I mean, you can still do a lot of that. He said, a lot of this stuff we don't know and, and we don't want to spend time learning it. It's cost the client a lot of money and if we kind of cut through all that. So that's what I've been, I did that now 11 years. So. Yeah, and, it, and it's good. I mean, I, you know, I still know a lot of the people from uh, um, 
when I was knew him in the government. In fact, uh, Steve Volstek, who works out at Saki One now, is Ron's son, mm -hmm. and he called me the other day, and we were talking about old times. So, <laughs> yeah. So, it, so that's that's good. I mean, it, and it's kind of worked out for Stowe Reeves because they, you know, like I said, they don't they don't have to waste a lot of time looking stuff up. You know. Yeah, they brought they hired the expertise. Yeah. So tell me about if you were if you were taking if if it were 1976 you're taking your job again right now in 2019, uh, what's different about coming into TTB uh, now as opposed to when when you got started here in Oregon? Um, well, I mean, again, as I said, the way the regulatory agencies work, Congress gives them their money, and in TTB, especially the last three four years. Um, they are getting monies from Congress with dedicated purpose, mm -hmm. okay? And we're not just going to give you a bunch of money and then you decide, because they have an operating plan and they have, you know, a mission statements and all that stuff. And there is protect the revenue, there is protect the consumer. Mm -hmm. But within that, there's a lot of, you know, leeway. And um, a couple years ago, a perfect example is when the government shut down uh, and all these, you know, people were running stories and CNN and everything about, well, what does this mean, practical to the consumer? Mm -hmm. And here's some brewer in St. Louis or something say, well, I can't get out my holiday beer because TTB won't, is shut down, they won't approve my label. So look at this, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. So so right after that, uh, Congress said, okay, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna give you some extra monies and you are gonna clean up this label approval process and it's gonna be done within a certain time. And if you don't do that, you're not going to get any more money for that. We're going to take that away. Um, so they did. They gave me some money, and they had to go hire a whole staff of people that, you know, said the backlog, because at that time, you'd send a label in there and wait for months to get it approved. And then, of course, if you try to sell it without that, now you're running a risk. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And then the other one, the most recent example was some dedicated funds for business practices. You know, this, you know, what you can do to get your product sold, the relationship between the retailer and the wholesaler, the retailer and the producer. Mm -hmm. Congress heard enough complaints and said, All right, you guys go clean this up. You, you, this whole thing about um, slotting fees and how you get into supermarkets and what could be sold. And so they, they've spent the last couple of years, mm -hmm. really going after that. So when you do that, I mean, the agency, and this is what I was telling the San Francisco Chronicle, the agency has 60 field investigators for 50 states, okay? So they were saying, well, don't, don't they go out and do these product integrity inspections? And I said, okay, 60 guys for 50 <laughs> states. They may do some, but it's usually complaint driven. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so I think the only big difference now is that Congress is saying, this is your money and this is what you're gonna spend it on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that can change from, you know. So before that, we didn't have that. I mean, the, you would get your budget and then the agency would decide how to allocate it. But now, Congress wants more say. And, you know, and if you don't do what they say, then you don't get the money. So that's <laughs> kind of the way that works, you know. So I think you, you now, Coming in now, I mean, the investigators, again, the field guys, you know, they're going to be told this is what the, I, mean, I used to have to do an operating plan where we would sit there and say, all right, we're planning on doing this many of this kind of inspection, this many of that, and I had 
I had nine states. So, you know, I'd send somebody to Utah and they'd be there a month. I'd send somebody to Montana. I'd send somebody to Hawaii. I'd send, you know, but you had to do all this within the budget. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'd come and say, well, you know, that's what your budget was, but now there's been this rescission, so now this is what you have. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Sure, absolutely. Well, that's all, all the questions that I have for okay. you today. I really okay. appreciate this. Is there, is there anything I should have asked that I no, didn't, anything we no, didn't I cover? No, I think you pretty well got it. All right. uh, and I didn't give up too many names. No, so. <laughs> you did great. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, for your answers, for uh, sure. interviewing with us. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.